So the questions are these. How can we really activate the best of the private sector to meet the challenges of the real world? Is there a way to accelerate my career that doesn't involve boring online or classroom courses? And can I really impact people in the developing world with the skills that I have? Can I finally feel proud of what I know? Those are the questions, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Philippa White, and this is Thai Unearthed. Keep listening, and you can follow us on our journey as we show you how we're connecting the private sector with the social sector to make change. Hello everyone, Philippa White here and welcome to episode 23 of Thai Unearthed. Today I'm speaking with Renee Cariol. Renee, it is such an honor to have you with us today. Thank you. My pleasure, my privilege. Great. Very pleased to be here. Oh, I am too. Now, let me tell our listeners a little more about you and your background. Um, Renee is the accidental executive coach and has worked with many CEOs of multinational companies and heads of state and leading global entrepreneurs. He is an author with Spike being his latest critically acclaimed book. He is a TV presenter, media pundit, and currently writes a column on inclusion for management today. He is a visiting professor at Cass Business School, but most of all, he is an ardent student and practitioner of inclusive leadership. As he says, good leaders create followers, great leaders create leaders. Renee, um, it is just wonderful to have you here and we're gonna be talking about leadership, diversity and inclusion and probably so many more things over and above that, uh, knowing you. Um, as all, well, all of these are hot topics, but there's just a lot going on at the moment and I know there's a lot that you have to say. So let's kick this off. Um, first of all, uh, just Renee, if you could just tell people about you and your background and your work. So I'm, I'm, I'm a businessman by background. So, you know, leaving, left. my parents were born in Gambia, West Africa, yeah. came over to London in the UK in the early 1960s. And they came with that dream, the immigrant's dream, that we were a British colony. And they were going to, they, we, in Gambia, we had primary education, we had secondary education, we didn't have any tertiary. No colleges, no universities. So the dream for many people from the British colonies was to come to the UK, get their kids a university education, go back, there'd be someone and live happily ever after. Hmm. Well, they always underestimated the pull, the glamour, the allure of the most cosmopolitan city on the planet, which is London. They also underestimated just how expensive London was in the early 1960s. When they came over and they were middle class in Gambia, having sold up everything and moved to London, it was so expensive that the only properties they could afford was in not the best areas, which meant not the best schools, which meant not the best education. I was lucky enough to get to university. I was lucky enough to start my career at Marks and Spencer, which was the biggest retailer in Europe at the time. I did 10 years there. They taught me everything about management, not a lot about leadership. Hmm. I went onto the board at Pepsi in the, U in the US. I worked out of Purchase, New York in, for three years. They taught me everything about leadership, but not a lot about management. So I came back to the UK. I was on the board of IPC Media. We did a management buyout. We bought the business, sold the business to AOL Time Warner. And I retired in 2000. Wow. Got home. My wife kicked me out two weeks later. 
and I was back on the road again. But this time I'm running my own business. And I started speaking, writing, thinking, breathing leadership. And not only that, I'd realized that so many people of the time, it, they were managers, they weren't leaders. But I had this dream of get, convincing the world to manage a little less and lead a little more in, in the era of change that we lived in. Mm-hmm. And about the same time, it, it realized to me that um, when I looked up in every business I worked with, the leaders tended to look the same. They were tended to be male. They tended to be white. They tended to be middle class. They tended to come from prestigious universities. There wasn't a lot of places left for others. So I had another bee in my bonnet. We're going to change that. We're going to change that with inclusive leadership. And I've been fighting that battle for the last 20 years. And I've been lucky enough to become that accidental coach. And I've coached more chief executives than I could remember. And of multinationals, as you say, of Fortune 500 companies, and I've coached heads of state, and I've coached big entrepreneurs. I'm very privileged to have done so. But I suppose May the 25th, 2020, the world changed, and I think it's changed forever. With the tragic murder of George Floyd, Mm -hmm. something happened. Something happened. And you couldn't have planned it. You couldn't have predicted it. You couldn't have made it happen. And three, four days after that tragic murder, 80 countries had protests of Black Lives Matter, including the UK. And it wasn't people of my vintage that were on the streets. I've lived lived a life of, for far too many years, wanting to be accepted, for far too many years wanting to fit in, not speaking out, not speaking up, feeling really strongly that I might be, it might be career limiting. It might label me difficult. It might hamper where I wanted to get to. After May the 25th last year, I realized that it was my job with my battle scars to speak for many of those who've been marginalized but may not have the platforms to speak up. Yeah. And something really strange happened, Philippa. Um, Two or three days after the 25th of May, my phone started to go ballistic. (laughs) WhatsApp was going mad, and it was all white, male, middle-class men who I look up to. Chief executive and chairman who I've coached were coming through, and they were asking me one question. I want to engage with my colleagues at work. I believe I need to initiate a conversation around race, but I don't know where to start. I'm scared to start. I'm paralyzed with fear of saying the wrong thing. I'm going to be clumsy. I'm going to make some gaffes. I'm going to use the wrong language. I might make things worse. What do I do? And I found myself giving a series of 15-minute coaching sessions, and they all went something like this. The only thing you can't do is nothing. Neutrality is no longer an acceptable position. Being non-racist doesn't exist. You have to be anti-racist. You're going to have to commence these conversations. And it doesn't matter if you're clumsy. It doesn't matter if you make mistakes. The only mistake is the one you don't learn from. Everyone will gauge your intent straight away. They'll understand you're honorable. You may not be an expert. There are no experts. No one's going to be perfect. Commence. Begin. Theory gets you so far. You better get practical. It's a bit like swimming. Yeah. 
You've got to get in that water. You're going to get wet. You're going to swallow some water. You may get a mouthful. You may get a bellyful. But you know, there'll be some allies that will help you swim. You will learn. After a couple of weeks, every single one of them started. Every yeah. single one of them didn't look back. Every single one of them has continued. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that was actually one of my questions for you. I mean, I've got so many questions for you. But, you know, the winds of change of obviously Black Lives Matter, we've also got Me Too, um, Time's Up, you know, just to name a few. Um, you know, they the really are. Philippa. It's adjusting to gale force. Absolutely. And these issues of diversity and equality and social justice, I mean, they just cannot be ignored anymore. Um, by company leaders, but also individual leaders. And as, as we talked about just before we started talking now, um, this is also coming from people within companies. They feel this change and they know it needs to be made. And many companies are now in the process of writing their ESGs, their Environmental, Social and Government Goals. I would love, I mean, you've, you've said that you're talking to various different company leaders about, um, you know, uh, about their, their, their questions around, you know, how to respond. And actually, that's one of my other questions. But just purely from the point of view of these ESG strategies, which so many companies are currently thinking about, when it comes to the social side of these strategies, what would you suggest to companies? What would you suggest to these leaders? So there, there, are, there are a few things. So I, I, I'm, I'm its biggest fan, biggest proponent. And we're in a world where purpose meets profits, where the business of business may no longer be just business. Mm-hmm. It's going to be more than that. But, you know, there's this predilection to get straight to strategy. Let's get to actions. Let's execute. Let's do some stuff. Hold on a minute. Wait until you've won the hearts and minds. Wait until you've fully embraced it. Wait until you've fully understood it. Wait until you've fully understood the implications of what you're trying to achieve. This rush, and I hear so many people on the street saying, where are the actions? Hold on a moment. Actions without purpose mean nothing. Mm-hmm. And we've got too many people rushing headlong into do stuff. I don't want to be tick box. I want to show that we're doing stuff. Do real stuff. Real stuff. Really understand it. So we're working with many boards in the C-suite, and it's really difficult for people to get. You know, and you, Philip, you've heard me on my mantra before that, you know, <laughs> diversity is a fact. Inclusion is a choice. Oh, gosh. And yes, you, you, um, you posted this beautiful, uh, you, you have your daily spike sparks, which I read every single time you send them. And there was one that you said, diversity is inviting someone to the party. Inclusion is asking them to dance. Ah. It's relatively straightforward to be invited to the dance. To be asked to dance is difficult. What we're seeing is, and this is why I, this is why I say that, do not rush to the strategy and the action plan until you've won the hearts and minds. Yeah. You know, I, so what we're seeing is that it's one thing, and it's a good thing to have that diversity, but I think too many of the leaders I work with, they, it looks good, but does it feel good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I ask them, hold on a minute, does it feel good? Last night I did a session. I said, I did a brilliant, we had about 
15 top draw black executives from an Anglo-American insurance company. And, um, and what they decided to do that they, they just, they realized that they, no matter what they, 80,000 employees, no matter what they've done over the last five years, they cannot get African-American colleagues or British colleagues to the executive suite. Mm. So what they've done is they've, they've, they've put together a program. They've taken 15 that were nominated by their managers, had to jump through a lot of ho hoops, and there's a six-month program that I'm leading, which the end game is to get them through to prepare them to be executives in the company. They're trying to grow their own. They want to say that we've got our own executives we've produced. The brilliance of their program is that every single one of the 15 has an advocate, a sponsor, and a coach who is a, who is a different senior executive. So they're doing two things. Grooming the talent in a development program, but those who they touch, the advocate, the sponsor, and the coach, is also learning how yeah. to work with people who are very different to them and come and walk in their shoes. Mm -hmm. We had a moment last night, and I think this brings it all out. Um, I was teaching about strength-based leadership based on my last book, Spike. We're doing exercises on everyone's brilliant at everything, but no, everyone's brilliant at something, but no one's brilliant at everything. Mm -hmm. I was showing them this, that the route to the top is finding the two or three things you're outstanding at, fine-tuning those, but don't try and be brilliant at everything. It's a route to disaster, which is mm -hmm. the old-fashioned doing things. And one of them said, um, do you know, when we went out into the breakout groups, we realized that the majority of us had similar limitation, one similar limitation. And I said, what's that? And they said, being assertive in large groups. Okay. And mm -hmm. it became a recurring theme throughout our session together, that many of the Afri African-Americans oh, really found it really hard. You, you get it, Philippa, straight mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. But the two people from the leadership development side of the business didn't get it. Oh, well, we can train you. Well, well, Rana can give you some presentation skills. You can do it. It's not mm, presentation no. skills. Yeah. Well, we'll teach you how to be more assertive in your language. It's not about being assertive in the language. This is deep-seated, deep-rooted. Totally. Yeah. And in a way, when I say to you that don't rush to strategy, you've got to understand things like that. They're complex. Yeah, that's such a great example. Yeah, and you know, it's not everyone who gets that, Philippa. Yeah. And my, my, my co and then I realized I've got to coach the guys at the top of the organization to understand that. That actually does bring me to another question that I had for you. Um, and it, you know, this area of diversity, inclusion, unfortunately, it is such a loaded subject, but it, it almost, it needs to be as, you know, it needs to be talked about more and more, but it needs to just become an easy conversation for people to just, it, it, for it to be easier to talk about. But unfortunately, it's still not. And it creates a certain amount of resistance and discomfort. And it, it's not that people don't want to embrace it, but I think it's because you actually mentioned it when you started talking just at the beginning of our conversation, that leaders or companies are desperately worried about doing the wrong thing. And I just would really like to know, what would you tell business leaders? So, for example, if they wanted to create some kind of a discussion or an event, not event, but uh, some kind of a, 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 a talk. 
it's, it's really easy. It's really, 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 really easy. So a, a few things. Yeah. So I would say that um, if there's no courage, it ain't going to happen. If you're bold, you might fail. If you're not bold, you will fail. So get your courage out. Yeah. And it goes with any form of cultural change. This is not strategy. This is culture. Right? You're changing your culture. Every time you're changing, if you want to be more collaborative, if you want to be more inclusive, you want more leadership, you want more... Whatever it is, it's going to take a bit of courage. If there's no courage, don't even start. Don't open the book. Go and do something else. But you know the biggest way stories... Until stories, stories. Own, stories, stories, stories. Until yeah. the lions have their own storytellers, the tales of the hunt will always favour the hunter. <laughs> it's leaders tell stories, managers talk strategy. Love it. So when I go in, before people have even settled in their seats, I tell them a story that's going to create some discomfort, but no one was harmed and no one was killed. <laughs> My very first job, when I started at Marks & Spencer's, Within a year, I was given a team to run. Someone somewhere realized that there was something about me and I was given a team to run. The first member of my team that joined was Martin. Martin was from the north of England, from Leeds. He was a Yorkshireman. Mm -hmm. And in the interview, when I was interviewing Martin, he said to me, Rene, I've never had any black friends. I didn't think that was the best interview line when he's coming to work for a black boss, but that was okay. We got on really That's well. That's great, though. I love his honesty. Oh, isn't it wonderful? But listen yeah. to it's part of the story. You've just, you're catching on. I can say things in a story that's not going to offend. And I've just said something that no one would say in public, but Martin said it. Everyone feels, oh, well, no, no one's crying around here. It's okay. Anyway, <laughs> we've, we were based out at Chiswick in West London, and um, there was a, and I had a fantastic team, and we had one of those weeks where everything works. Every deadline was hit. Every target was hit. So at the end of the week, I took my team out to local hostelry, to a local pub on the corner. And I used to go in there, I was frequented it a few times. All my team was in there. We had a few drinks. We had a fantastic night celebrating when everything went brilliantly. As it gets to about nine, 10 o'clock in the evening, there's only Martin and I left. And I go to, I ask for the bill. The barman comes over and he says, um, is there anyone else who can pay apart from you? <gasps> I said, I beg your pardon. Can anyone pay apart from you? I beg your pardon. I'm furious now. Martin comes over, I'll pay. So Martin, get out of here. Don't worry, I'll pay. Get out of here. The manager of the pub hears the loud voices, wanders over and says to me, he's recognised me, and he says, what's going on? I tell him what has gone on. He says to the barman, I'll see you in the office in a minute. He says to me, the drinks are on the house tonight. Thank you very much. But by now, I'm so angry. I said, I'm paying. <laughs> what a crazy... Where was paying. this in England? In London. And he God. says... No, you're not paying. Martin, eventually, I calm down, I thank him, and we leave. When we're walking down the road, Martin says to me, you are so sensitive about race. I said to him, how dare you? And we have a blazing row walking down the road the way only friends can have that sort of row. Mm. We put our briefcases down and we're going at it. A tall white man comes over and says to Martin, are you having problems with him? Do you need any help? <laughs> God. And Martin, Martin turns on him, and me and Martin chase this man down the road. Martin comes back for the first time in his life. He walked in my shoes. Yeah. He knew what it was like. Yeah. Martin and I have been friends for 30 years. Every time we meet, what's the first thing he talks to me about? It's changed his life forever. 
Now, I tell that story in the boardroom just to soften them up. Guess what that does to the atmosphere in the boardroom? Everybody opens up. I've told this really racy story and nobody died. Nobody was hurt. Yeah. I've said some pretty tough things in there. Now we can have the conversation. I have to lead it. I'm facilitating it. I'm pushing people. But I've opened up the doors. Yeah. So with that in mind, with various global events that have, you know, George Floyd, but other other events, but that was obviously a... a, a They're happening a, on a, a weekly a, basis, as we know. Yeah, a couple of days ago. Um, there, and, and this is very much in line with what you've said. And again, I'd love to know what you would recommend because there's much panic emanating from the C-suites on how they should respond in a way that pacifies their critics, engages their customers, protects their brand. What, what in your view, is the answer to all of this? So look, it's like everything else. We, we saw it with Me Too. Engage. Yeah. So people say that, um, you know, um, we don't want to be political. Well, we don't want to be, we're going to be apolitical. You can't be apolitical. You know, we, you, if, you, if you decide a stance of silence, it's political. As we saw in Georgia with the voting issues, you, you have to get engaged. How far you go is entirely your choice. Doing nothing is no longer an option. I think what I'm, what I'm saying is there are no longer innocent bystanders. It's inclusion is not a spectator sport. You can't watch it. You have to participate. Yeah. But I think what I, what I like to see is with, you may need a slower start in some environments. That's okay. It's just sitting there doing nothing, watching it go by. Your talent's going to walk out that door. Yeah, exactly. What we're seeing, what we've, so Philippa, about six weeks ago, I was asked to speak at a climate change conference. And the venerable David Attenborough, our very own David Attenborough from the UK, yeah. he's, he's got it. He, he speaks, you listen. But it never engaged business. They never did anything different. Yeah. Greta Thunberg comes along and her generation, business is listening, business is acting, business is reacting. Sustainability. My daughter, she looks what goes into her makeup. She cares about it. She thinks about how, what her food is wrapped in, what her coffee comes in. She looks at the one-off one use of plastic. She's worried about how much people are paid to make her fashion garments. And she's vocal about it. And businesses listen. And what happens about race is that we understand Netflix and Nike being interested in the conversation about race, but I'm talking Price Waterhouse Coopers, British Airways. I'm saying Unilever. I'm saying Procter & Gamble. And we talked about, and we talked about that as well, earlier um, before we started recording. In your view and from your work, how do you see the landscape of talent and also just businesses? Where is this movement coming from? What are people looking for? Two things. I think it's where it's coming from is the next generation of customers who are vocal, who are assertive, who are demanding change. And they're, they're louder than my, my generation. They're more assertive. They'll get on the streets. They'll boycott. They'll, 
they, they, they are so, so vocal about it, but businesses are responding to it yeah. and loudly and clearly and demonstrably. And what I'm seeing is now, I was saying to you earlier, Philip, we've never been busier. Every, and I'm, I'm doing so much work in the US. And it's been interesting because why would you import some black guy from the UK to come and work with the guys in the US? Because the US is so toxic. It's so polarized. Yeah. It's so, and you, I, I can feel the negative energy. And what I've decided to do is we've built a reputation and all the work we do, we're optimists. We think optimism is a force multiplier. And what we're trying to do is heal situations, bring people together. We're stronger together. And separation doesn't work. Polarization doesn't work. And many of the books that have been written have been written and they're angry. And they have every right to be angry. But when you finish reading them and you're even angrier, I'm yeah. not sure that takes us anywhere. I'm just not sure that takes us anywhere. So we're trying to find a different sort of solution. And we think um, we've got to come together. Yeah. And we think the strength of the pack is the wolf and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Together we're unbeatable, we're formidable. It's when we're broken apart that it, it becomes very dangerous. Yeah, and I, I would say that Ty has a very similar um, approach uh, to, to all of this, both from a, um, a diversity and inclusion point of view, leadership, positivity, you know, let's be the change. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you as well, actually, because kind of back to the, to the challenges that many of these leaders um, have around this conversation around diversity and inclusion and the importance of embedding it. I feel that, you know, for that to be possible, key decision makers and leaders need to themselves have an, a, a, an element of cultural intelligence or exposure to people who are unlike them. And as you, as you mentioned about Martin, um, you know, it surprisingly isn't that uncommon um, uh, or it's, yeah, I mean, it's surprisingly common that many of these leaders don't actually have that much exposure to people unlike them. And I feel that the key is for people to expand their personal circle, you know, step out of their bubbles, have exposure to people and cultures that they wouldn't normally have exposure to so that they can then have that empathy and that understanding and that ability to be a better leader. Um, and, you know, that's where Ty helps. I mean, that's a, that's a big part of what Ty is. And and it just... certainly does. And it, 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 it goes back to what I was saying to you before, that the insurance company I was working with last night, the beauty of what they're doing is that the advocates, the sponsors, the coaches, they've got to mix with the black talent. And that's not new. That, for many of them, it's brand new. They've not done it. I did a session with Microsoft and... So I was talking to, and it was Ralph Houter, he's the president of the EMEA operation, Europe, Middle East, Africa. Mm -hmm. He's German, fantastic guy. And we were, he's got 50, five zero direct reports, 50 country managers from 50 different countries. And I was, along with some others, pitching to do some work with them around inclusion. And we had a great conversation. Then I got the work. And the following day, Ralph called me and he said, look, have you got 15 minutes? We spent two and a half hours on the phone. And Ralph said to me that he'd never had a, converse, a deep, such a soul-searching conversation around inclusion. As far as he was concerned, when a 
Microsoft, when they've spoken about diversity and inclusion, they're a bunch of engineers. It's very mechanistic. They do the strategy, they do the process. No one had touched his heart and mind. For some reason or someone, I'd got through to him a few stories. He went home, he spoke to his wife, and he said that something I'd said, something I'd done, had made him realize that there was four guys of mixed heritage had grown up within Germany. They'd gone to junior school, high school, university together. They grew up somewhere near Dusseldorf, and there was an American airbase. And their fathers were, were African-American black servicemen, and their mothers were German. And these four guys had grown up, they were some of his best friends. And when he spoke to his wife, she said, he said, look, Rene's made me realize something. Do you know something? All the time I've known them, from junior school right through till now, I've never heard them raise their voices. They've never had an argument. They've never raised their hand in class. They've never challenged. Never. Why? So what he did, he phoned up one of the guys. Oh, wow. That night. And he called him up and he said, look, and they had a very difficult conversation that ended with both of them in tears. And he said, you, you never even used to raise your voice. I've never seen you have a fight, never seen any argument. He didn't say anything. He said, um, and even now, you know, you're the calmest guy I've ever met. And so are the other three. And his friend said to him, there were five of us. Don't you remember? He said, the other one, when, when we were 12, he had a fight in class. And his dad came up the following day because he got beaten up by a couple of guys. His dad came to school and complained. That night, his house was firebombed. They're all burnt to death. <gasps> he said, so my father had the conversation that I know my, the others, their father said, you will never argue. You will never stand up. You will never challenge. You will never say a word. Philippa, I've had the similar conversation with my son. You speak to so many of us parents of the marginalised. We know that our sons will be stopped by the police. We know that our sons will be arrested. We know that our sons, we've had those talks. I'm used to having that talk. You talk to the black parents, we're used to having those talks. Yeah, no, Most I, I of my white colleagues so don't, can't recognise that talk. They can't recognise that talk. So when we start to share what the experience is like, and people say, well, it's, it's important that we all know. When Ralph called me, he couldn't hold the tears back. And you know what he kept saying? He said, but they're my best friends. Why didn't I know? Why didn't I see it? Why didn't I realize? That's the question. Yeah. That's what we're trying to break. And when I have these conversations in the boardroom, I don't get any resistance. So I challenge what you say that people don't, don't want to. It's they don't know how to. But I find that when, we're, when I, we start to break it down and have the conversations, they're standing four square next to me. They, they want this world to change as much as I do. Mm -hmm. But we've got to have that even-tempered, that conversation. I'm telling the stories. I'm sharing some stuff. I'm showing some videos. I'm, and you know what I find, Philippa, that humankind, the majority of us are in the same. We're, we're so similar. Yeah. We want the same things, but yeah. we haven't taken the time to share it. And I don't find a lot of resistance. I really, really don't. But I suppose I've learned, I think I'm trying to learn, how do we connect? How do we share? How do we become as one?
What, Renee, have I not asked you that you can tell our listeners? Um, do you know, I suppose you've, you've asked all the right questions, I think, but I think um, I need to say a little bit more about the power of stories. Yeah, please. You know, just that when we share each other's backgrounds, we touch each other. And it's, it's the empathy, it's the emotional connection that you talked about, the cultural awareness, that most of us, we may come from most different, disparate places, but we can share. And when we realise that our difference is our strength and our strength is our difference, you know, and our, the power comes from seeing things differently. And we should celebrate that difference. Yeah, it can become extremely powerful. Yeah. Extremely yeah. powerful. I am so hopeful. I'm so optimistic. I, I see the brightest future. We've got, to keep, we've got to learn to speak up, speak out. And I say to everyone, it's everybody in, nobody out. Believe in everyone. Yeah, I, it's really inspiring. And we just need more voices um, like yours leading this charge because it's just more of these, as you say, it's more of these stories, more of these voices, more of these stories. And then it just becomes, then people do understand and then people do start to question. And then people say, but, you know, um, but without the voice, without these stories, like you say, then it's understandable why your friend called you and said, what, you know, I don't know, you know, or called, you were talking to the individual who called his friend and said, you know, why did I not see that? Well, it's because no one talked about it and no one questioned it. Precisely, Philip. And when we become curious about each other, yeah. curious about difference, we, we do you know, um, as, as, as we say, it's, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to have a logical argument about racism because racism is not logical. You're just going to drive yourself mad trying to argue <laughs> with the racist. Mm. But what we've realised is no one was born a racist. Yeah. If you were taught to hate, you can be taught to love. And it's, if we can teach you to love, we've won the battle. Thank you, Renee. That's really great to hear. And that's just it. I mean, I think it's so important. Um, I had a conversation with Gib Bullock yesterday for one of our, um, going to be launching that podcast on Friday. And, uh, and, you know, he says, if we want people to think out of the box, if we want people to do things differently, they need to live out of the box. They need to have experiences outside of what they are used to. And it's the same with this conversation of diversity and inclusion. And it's just what we've been talking about. You know, if you just constantly hang out with the same people and are surrounded by the same issues and the same challenges and the same conversations, you aren't going to be able to empathize. And you're also not going to be able to understand what the whole other part of the um, population is experiencing or doing. And how can you be a leader if you don't understand those dynamics? And so it's absolutely fundamental, I think, to just for leadership, for being a better leader, point blank. You need to be able to expand your personal circle you need to have conversations with people who have different experiences to your, yours, step out of your bubble, step out of your comfort zone, feel uncomfortable, have those difficult moments, because that's when you start to have those aha moments and realizations. Yeah, Wonderful. really, Renee, thank you so much for this conversation. I so appreciate your time and your passion, your work, which is just so incredibly important. Um, and uh, I will put Spike the link to it on on the on the um, link in the notes, and a link through to you, so that to people who are listening, they can reach out to you and uh, and get in touch. Thank you very much, Philippa. You look after yourself. Thank you. You too, Renee. Take care. Thank you. Cheers. Goodbye. Bye. 
Hey everyone, this is Philippa again. So this is your chance to get involved with Thai. We have three absolutely amazing virtual opportunities available, all rooted in connecting the private sector with the social sector to make change. Thai has never been more necessary than right now. So if you're looking for life-changing leadership development opportunities for your employees and you want your company to impact the world, we've got you covered. If you're looking to step out of your comfort zone and use your skills to make a difference and keen to meet other like-minded professionals with similar values, then our Thai Accelerator program is for you. There are so many options, so I urge you to get in touch. Go to theinternationalexchange.co.uk for more information or just shoot us an email. Better companies, better leaders, better world.